Welcome to Thinking Out Loud, a podcast on a train bound for nowhere. When I was coming up with ideas for this podcast, I was trying to think of a name. And, you know, various different names are coming into my head. And then I was thinking about the environment we're in at the moment with COVID and the overall tech environment that we've been living through for the last four or five years that seems to be operating at a hyper speed and I was thinking back to when I was kind of a teenager or an adult and I used to do a lot of thinking out loud whether it was friends in a pub environment or or a, a dressing room in a sports or team environment or even in a workplace and what I mean by thinking out loud thinking out loud to me is um a method of exploring, you know, whatever half-baked ideas you might have about the world, or what half-baked biases that you might have already developed in yourselves. And you'd say them out loud in a comfortable, kind of a safe, often community environment, to test them out, to see if, you know, people agree or people disagree. But the thing about it was that you could try them out if you were wrong, if you were developing a bias that was going down or on track, you had a kind of a, an environment where somebody would say to you, you know what, that idea is crazy. And believe me, my ideas frequently were. So if this podcast has a theme, it's this. It's a, a place where I'm going to think out loud. Some of my ideas you might agree with, some of them you probably won't agree with. And I hopefully will develop one or two followers as we're going through this journey. But the idea is is to kind of explore things that are knocking around in my head and, you know, get feedback to see if I'm right or wrong because I'm as interested as anybody else in finding out the answers. Another reason I kind of wanted to do this is that I have an interest in writing and journalism. I've been writing a blog for three or four years. And through doing that, I've kind of seen or I've got ideas of how the media works, especially the media in a social media environment, in that social media is the most important delivery tool for any traditional media organization. And I want to explore how that is probably 
destroyed the news as we get it at the moment. And I suppose the other thing is through being interested in writing, I'm very interested in language and the language that's used, words, phrases that are used in news articles. And, you know, that very often that is a science in itself. So hopefully we'll point out a few things in that line. Um, so, and just finally, I suppose, as an explanation of this podcast is that I am, um, how do I put this? Hmm. I I'm going to be looking at news stories. There's a lot of new there's a lot of news that I don't really want to read. There are a lot of stories, not the not because they're false or not false, or that, you know what what I'm reading is lies, I'm not saying that. But what I'm saying what I'm more interested in is the stories that nobody will write about. And there are plenty of them in the news, especially in this COVID environment. And especially with the U.S. presidential election happening in the next two weeks. It's the stories that are not being written about that I'm most interested in finding out about. So I'm going to be discussing stuff that isn't really gone into detail in Irish media or either kind of UK or U.S. media either. So to that end, the topics I'll be kind of look, have taken a look at today are... Um, the U.S. presidential election, but specifically, I want to want to take a look at the state of Texas because I've been doing a lot of analysis on that state because early voting began last week. There's a huge amount of data in on the Texas vote, and I think we'll be able to extrapolate a lot of what's going to happen on Tuesday week from what's going on in Texas at the moment. The other thing is, where's Hunter? Hunter Biden. Um, if you're hearing the words Hunter Biden and you're just vaguely aware that he, he sounds like he might be Joe Biden's son, is that who it is? Well, that's not your fault. It's because nobody's writing about Hunter Biden there. And we're going to go into that in detail, especially with regard to the story that broke last Thursday and how mainstream media sources in the United States, but even here in Ireland, are not covering the story in anything like any detail. Finally, just on the fun side, there's going to be a bit of music in this podcast. One of the major issues I've had before setting up here is trying to figure out how to license music that isn't crap. Um, There are plenty of sites where you can get podcast music, but it's like the music is terrible. So hopefully, the introduction, uh, the introduction to this podcast, I have played a piece of music that's something in the R and B or rock and roll sphere, and that you've enjoyed it. But I don't know yet because I haven't chosen. Um, and finally, I'm going to be looking at just funny, a, a funny story that's really kind of made me smile is the CNN story about Jeffrey Tubin, and if you haven't heard about Jeffrey Tubin, I'm going to get great delight in telling you about him. So without further ado, we'll, um, we'll move on into the US presidential election. Just a bit of background here. As of today, it's kind of mid-morning Wednesday, the 21st of October, there are approximately 36 million people have already voted in the United States. Now, 
the vast majority of these people that have voted up until we'll say yesterday were mail-in ballots. I'm sure there's been a lot of talk about mail-in ballot ballots. President Trump is, you know, shouting about elect, election fraud and this kind of thing. I'm personally speaking, don't have as much fear about that being an effective tool for the Democratic Party, just based on the huge volumes of people that are voting in person in states that have early voting in place. People in these states, like Texas, are choosing to vote in person over returning a ballot. And we'll get into that in a little detail now. But So basically, the great thing about elections in the United States, and to be fair, we don't give ourselves enough credit in, in most Western democracies. Information from government agencies is pretty good in the stati- statistical kind of analysis. Even if you think to COVID, it's, you know, you, you can really trust the numbers that are co- coming out of, we'll say, the HSC about COVID statistics in Ireland. Go on their site. If you follow it for long enough, you follow the trends, you can see maybe there's a, there's a couple of times where they're kind of trying to paper over death statistics or something like that for a day or two. But generally speaking, we, we have a very good picture of how many cases we have in Ireland, how many people have died. And when, where mistakes are made, they're generally revised, um, you know, within a few days. Now, in terms of the US presidential election, each state, most states in the United States, there are 50 states, the department, each each state basically runs like the country. In, like each state has its own constitution and each state has its own legislature. It has its own sets of laws and this kind of stuff. So, but generally speaking, the department for, the department, the department of state in each state is responsible for elections and, you know, posting results and photo registration, all that kind of stuff. And the information, like, I've never gone into, I've always had an interest in U.S. elections, but I've never gone into it in as much detail as I've gone into it this year. And I'm quite fascinated to see how much information is available on voting as it's happening. So, like, if we take a state like Texas, um, that you know, at the end of every day, we have we know exactly how many people have voted. We know where they voted, what counties. We can compare it against the voter turnout from two thousand and sixteen, and we can draw some. I suppose we can draw some inferences from that that I think would be pretty kind of solid, um, as we're you know going along. So. Basically, I think last Tuesday, so what day is today? Wednesday, last Tuesday week, early vote, early in-person voting began in the state of Texas. Now, Texas is a fascinating state because at least 2 million people have moved into the state since to the 2016 election. So Democrats in America, in the U.S. are getting very excited about te- about Texas being a purple state, as they call it, or a state that they can flip in this election. If there's a blue wave, put it this way: if there's a bu- if there's a blue wave in the in the United States this year, Texas could 
you'd expect Texas is a state that could flip based on the demographics of the state. And there's a lot of inward migration into Texas. And the majority of that inward migration is coming from the state of California. So you could say a week ago on day one of in-person early voting in Texas, there was a lot of worried Trump campaign people, um, especially in, you know, especially in the in the larger in the larger counties with, you know, city based counties in 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 Texas. So what I was so since that started I've been basically running a spreadsheet on the numbers there for the last week. And what I've seen is basically that you know the biggest county in Texas is is a is a county called Harris Harris County and it has like in the last election I think it had something close to maybe one point three million people voting and it swung for Hillary Clinton um but the general trend after we're we're down into day seven or eight of early in person voting in Texas. Over, I think, 4 million people have voted in Texas. No, sorry, 5 million people have voted in Texas. I'm just looking at the spreadsheet here from last night. And, and just to give you an idea of what that means, in 2016, 8.9 people, 8.9 million people in total voted in Texas. So that they're already well over 50% of the 2016 turnout two weeks before the election. So I'm fully expecting that Texas is going to beat the total 2016 turnout before the election day. And I think it's November 3rd, is it? November 3rd or 4th. So what is the data saying is basically, you know, the question I'm asking myself and I'm keeping it kind of to see what way it's swinging. Based on the top top 20 counties in Texas and when I say top 20 counties what counties have the biggest early vote turnout as a percentage of the people that voted in 2016 when you do those numbers the top 20 the top 20 counties all voted Trump in 2016 and they didn't just vote for him most of them voted for him with a margin of 20% or more. Now, there's one or two big anomalies in that, but they're still red counties. And they're, so what that would signal, signal to me is the rural base of Trump is coming out in huge numbers in the early vote. And that is not a, that's not a statistic that's usual. It's kind of abnormal for Republicans to, vote in these numbers in early voting. But I think it's just a signal. It's a signal of two things. One, one, it's it's probably the most consequential US presidential election of my lifetime. You throw into that COVID, there's been nothing on the, on the US media. There's been nothing but Trump and COVID. They're the only two stories. And often they're one story wrapped together. So People on the left and people on the right, they are hyper, hyper ready to get out and vote. And what we're seeing from 
it's the same across most of the other states. Like maybe in the next podcast, I'll focus on Florida a bit more. But why I'm, why Texas is why I'm interested in Texas is I want to see two things. I want to see are, are this influx of two million people that have largely come from Arizona and California are they are they voting in sufficient numbers to kind of flip Texas or even reduce tech you know reduce Trump's margin down to I think he won the state by eight or nine points in the last election to see if they're making inroads on that kind of Trump vote based on what I'm seeing they're not and if I was to give you an example of the you know of the of the first you know the first blue county in Texas would be Harris is quite up there and don't get me wrong Harris over fifty percent of the Harris registered sorry registered voters have um, are close to fifty percent of the Harris registered voters have voters or you know, it's in that forty-five percent range, I think, as of this morning. They're they're voting in big numbers. The question is, does this does are they voting in sufficient numbers? And from what I'm seeing, is Trump's base is about ten points. Trump's heavy base in rural counties, and like a rural county in Texas, is anything from three thousand registered voters up to. 100,000 registered voters. And what I'm seeing is that they're, you know, Trump strongholds are turning out at the moment about 10% more than the Democratic strongholds. Now, we do have to bear in mind that Democratic strongholds, generally speaking, have much larger numbers of people in them. And to give you an example of this, there's about 250 counties in the state of Texas. I think 254 counties in the state of Texas. And of those 254, in the last election, Trump would have won 220 to 225 of them. So Democrats have to get their votes in like a very concentrated number of um, counties. And like the urban-rural divide is one of the big under- talked about um, things in the United States. We all know what's going on at the moment with Black Lives Matter, Antifa, um, you know, you have race relations, you have gender um, relations, you have transgender, you have all these kind of, um, you know, slicing and dicing of people. And But one of the things, one of the myths that they, do, they don't seem to spend a lot of time talking about is the massive difference in urban and rural attitudes in the United States. They're like poles apart. And it, it when you dig down into data, like uh, voting data, it's clear as, you know, it's pretty clear. So you, you look at, um, we say, if you look at, um, if you look at a, you know, a place like Denton, so Denton, uh, it's you know they've got about five hundred thousand registered voters. It's a, it's a county that's kind of straddles Fort Worth and Dallas, 
it's a, a server. It's kind of rural ser- and kind of data server for word servers. Quite big. It's a big vote. But they win for Trump 57-37 in the last election. So that's 20 points. So like the way I would look at this is if Denton, if, if for Joe Biden to win, he needs, that needs to be, he needs to make up, he, he needs to flip that county. Now he's, it's quite possible he can do it. The, the, the people are there to do it, but the trends in the data are not trending towards Biden. And uh, to give you a kind of a, an example of that, the Biden campaign have pulled most of their Texas advertising since the beginning of this week. So on day one, they were highly confident. There was a lot of, you, when you're getting pictures on your TV screen, you know, from CNN, MSNBC, they're, they're generally where Ireland picks up its video stuff from. So we'll get into a bit later about how news makes it to Ireland, like news that isn't yeah, based from Ireland. So anything we're getting from the state, we'll go into that in a little bit. But basically, if you've seen pictures on it, you know, it'll be a standard news story to, you know, have a few shots, maybe 30-second clip of early voting in Texas or Florida. You'll always get a clip from the biggest county in Florida or Texas. And they'll show you lines of people, you know, two miles of people queuing up to vote. And that is true, but it's it's not reflective of, um, it's never reflective of the Republican candidates because the Republicans rarely win any sizable block of vote in any of the major urban centers. So Dallas County itself would vote I think I think it was something like seventy percent, seventy twenty seven or something like that for Clinton. So when you see those pictures, you're thinking, "Oh, everybody's going out for everybody's going out for Biden." It's not really the case, even though the kind of insidious thing now that social media is basically controlling the news is that's the narrative that will play out in day one of early voting. That subliminal messaging gets out gets out into the media, gets makes its way to Ireland. And uh, you're looking and say, oh yeah, Biden's winning, Biden's winning. That matches what we're seeing in the polls. Well, it may, but because when I saw that footage basically last Tuesday, I was kind of, that, that seems a bit odd for Texas. So when I kind of went into the the, the state website and pulled out all the data, I could see that is true. Like the pictures aren't false, but what the pictures aren't telling you is that the top 20 counties for turnout so far were 17 of them were voting for Trump 65 30 in 2016. So it tells me he's his vote, Trump's base is out and his base is probably expanded. Again, that's not being. T- that's not being said out loud in the uh, in the media, but I think he's probably going to increase his African American vote, his Hispanic vote, and a group of people that nobody ever talks about is Asian American Asian Americans. They're they're um, 
you know, there are three parts of, um, you know, the voter block that get a lot, you know, the first two Hispanics and black Americans get a lot of the, you know, media attention. Asian Americans, God bless them. Nobody ever talks about them, but there's 21 million of them uh, in the state, states. So just to give you a, a little example, um, in 2016, Trump got 8% of the African-American vote. And he rather famously said at the time, and it got caught, it got picked up by all the kind of left-leaning media because they thought he said, he thought, they thought he was shooting himself in the foot by saying it. But what he said was, what have you got to lose? Basically, Democrats have done nothing for you for 50 years. Your standard of living's worse. The ghettos in, in the city centres are worse. Blah, blah, blah. So he got 8% of the vote. Not great. But when you compare that 8% to what Mitt Romney got in 2012, Mitt Romney only got 5% of the vote. Now, 8% is, you know, it's not good. But any polling that, uh, any polling that I've seen over the last two months that is focusing on what African Americans think of Donald Trump and how they're going to vote. I'm seeing data that, you know, all the reputable polling companies are putting out there. If you go into it, even though Trump is losing in all these polls, the anomaly is his um, approval with African Americans is anywhere between 16 and 24%. It's in that range, which is basically saying to me he's 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 going to double his African American vote at, on the worst day. If that polling is true, like we don't know, but we have no reason. It's pretty steady, like to be. It's definitely not going to be eight percent. So he's going to make gains there. He's going to make gains with a lot of Latino voters because when again, when when we look at when we look at the United States and we think of um, Hispanic vote, we think Mexico, but like Cuba, uh, Venezuela, there's at least ten countries that have significant um, Hispanic blocks of people living there and some of them like you know Cubans they're they're for Trump in like the 60 70 percent range um, and again any poll I've seen is I think he polled at 27 or 28 percent of Hispanics in 2016. Any poll I've seen, the lowest I've seen, is he's at 35% of them. Or maybe 32 or 35%. So again, he's, in, he's increased his approval with Hispanics. That's in the data. And again, this data is in data that's telling, that is also saying he's losing by 10 points or 8 points or 7 points. So there's, I don't know how, how th those projections are happening, but... Um, there is something off there. Uh, and the last one is Asian-Americans. Asian-Americans, his approval rate with Asian-Americans has gone up. Quite, I think it's trebled. And basically it's trebled because of his stance in China. Um, a lot of Chinese-Americans, now they're not a huge block, but there are about two and a half million people. Um, but all of the 
hinterland countries of China that are in, you know, Koreans, um, there be a lot of Thais in the United States, Indians, they're all head, like Modi's a populist in India. So Indian Americans, you know, will be breaking for Trump if they're independents. So that's, you know, so again, there's a block there of votes that I don't know how well any of these polling companies are capturing these 21 million Asian Americans. But I, I suspect based on what I'm seeing, they're not capturing them very well because Asian Americans show up at the polls. Hispanics show up at the polls. Traditionally, African Americans showed up in 2008 and 2012 for Barack Obama. They didn't show up for Hillary Clinton. Now, how much of that was down to Hillary Clinton? I don't know, but I, I'm not, I'm not sure how they're going to show up for Joe Biden. So basically, the state of play, as I see it, Biden's pulled out his advertising. He has loads of money, by the way, and um, he has pulled his advertising out of Texas at the weekend, or he's vastly reduced it. So that tells me the campaign on the ground are not going to waste resources on Texas. And the other tell is, I think Joe Biden, who is not campaigning at all on the ground, um, I think Joe Biden's wife, Jill, went to Texas the day before early voting started. There's been little talk of any campaigning or strategy for Texas since about Thursday of last week. So I would say to me, what that says to me is they're not happy with how the early voting is going, in-person voting. And the numbers of people that are returning ballots is not... When I say that 5 million people have voted, less than half a million have returned mail-in voting. And if you compare that to all the other states with, that have mail-in ballots, that's it's it's nowhere near as high as what other states are doing. And again, the early voting data tells me that it gives me the reason why I'm not so... I'm not as worried about there being mail-in ballot fraud because in the vast majority of states that are doing it, that have sent out ballots to everybody, um, they're sending them back in early and very early. So you're seeing huge leads for Biden in places like Florida at the moment um, and, you know, California and places like this. But you're not seeing it in Texas. And as Florida started voting on Monday of this week, um the rate of return of mail-in ballots is starting to drop off. So if you, you know, in a state like Florida, Biden has a two-to-one advantage in the number of mail-in ballot, ballots that have been returned to date. So it's all about Trump now getting out his base in Florida to vote in person. And we'll see how successful he is in doing that. So... That's pretty much the state of play in Texas. Um, what we'll what we'll what we'll kind of see is um, we'll keep an eye on that for the next couple of days. What the numbers in tech, if you were to extrapolate Texas as it stands at the moment, um, to the country, and I know that's kind of not a you know it's not a mathematical calculation. Let's put it that way. Um, 
it's it's this race is pretty tight. Like it's not tr- Trump's base has not fallen away, and if anything, it looks a bit stronger. So it's a question. It's going to come down to two or three states again. It's I don't. The early voting isn't indicating to me that there's a blue wave heading Joe Biden's direction and that he's going to win this election by nine points. As the average polling up to the weekend was showing him eight, nine points up. I can't see it in the early voting statistics. Let's put a, so put a stop to that talk. And as I said, I'm probably going to try and do this podcast uh, midweek and one at the weekend. So we'll probably get an update on Saturday. There'll be much more in-person voting back from Florida by the weekend. So we'll take a look at we'll take a look at what's going on down there. But like Florida is a must-win for a Donald Trump re-election, I think. Anyway, um, so the next thing I wanted to move on to is Hunter Biden. Hunter, Hunter, where's Hunter? So, as if you haven't heard this, there's like a major story broke out of the New York Post last Thursday. And it basically, a computer repair guy, a computer repair guy got a laptop, or it's not clear whether he got one laptop or three laptops, or one laptop and three hard drives. There is a receipt online showing that this did happen with Hunter Biden's signature on it. Now, it gets murky from there because at various stages, this laptop ended up in the FBI. It it seems the FBI weren't too interested in what was on it, um, whether that was for political reasons or or whatever. But they, they had this laptop at the end of last year. Now, Rudy Giuliani, the former mayor in New York, most people would, he'd have quite high name recognition in Ireland. He put away the, he put away the heads of the five mafia families in New York. He brought a load of Wall Street bankers um, to justice and jail when he, when he was a prosecutor of, in the, you know, he was the district attorney for the Southern District of New York. And we'll get to a bit about that as well. But um, he's a his like he has a very few people have a higher legal background than he has. Now, the last twenty years of his life has all been politics and this, and he is the personal lawyer of Donald Trump. So that brings its own hurricane of negative publicity. But like I've I've been following Rudy Giuliani. You know, I've an interest. I was born in New York, so. I've always an interest in what's going on in that in, in, in that city. So and Rudy, of course, was mayor when nine eleven happened. So like, if you talk to the mainstream media in two thousand and four about Rudy Giuliani, they'd have you know hugely positive um, narrative about him. But now you know Rudy's life has changed since he became Trump's personal lawyer about I don't know two or three years ago. So anyway, the second figure in this is Steve Bannon. And Steve Bannon is Irish-American. And anyone that's, you know, into their U.S. politics will know that he was the campaign manager for... He was brought in as the campaign manager for Donald Trump in 2016. Mid-August, I think it was. And Trump was 14, 15 points down in the polls. 
And look, he gets a lot of credit for turning around the Trump campaign for the last three months. He was in the White House for a year. He was fired. Depending on who you're talking to, he resigned or was fired. But he's been nothing but uh, support, an outside the White House support tool for President Trump for the last four years. And the mo- one of the most vocal. Now, has a bit of the other thing you have to get out in front here is the Southern District of New York currently have him under federal indictment for fraud on um, some not for not 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 for profit and um, build the wall thing where they were raising money and it to build a section of wall down in some part of Louisiana or someplace like not Louisiana but. Um, what is the state? Was it Arizona? Can't quite remember, but he's under federal indictment. And that indictment dropped six weeks ago. And when that happened, because I, I, I get a lot of my information in the United States from, he has a podcast, War Room Pandemic, it's currently called. But it started, it, it, it actually started about a year ago called War Room Impeachment. So basically what he did was he figured out that Trump has no allies in the White House. Very few in either the Senate or the House. Real, true kind of populists. When they kicked off the, when they kicked off his impeachment last year, on the you know this phone call to the Ukrainian president, like it was literally, in my opinion, anyway, there was nothing there. And but Bannon figured out pretty early that. If he didn't kind of corral the troops, they were going to get him. Like they they were going to flip enough senators to get the impeachment through the Senate. He knew, like in the House, the Democrats had the majority, so they were going to get they were going to sail through there no matter what happened. And to be fair, the impeachment trial was like it was like a show trial. It was just I don't know. I watch a lot of it now, and it was I suppose it really turned me because. When you watch people, like it's a courtroom environment, when you're watching people one after the other who had no, I think there was only one witness that I ever met Donald Trump that was in that impeachment trial. And you were, I was watching this and I was saying, how, when, when, when is someone going to, where's the evidence? Like who saw him do it or who heard him or where is it? And what used to happen is in the break, you'd have, um, I think it was a judicial committee that ran it in the House. But when the break would happen, you would have, you know, the Democrat members that were on the House committee run out to the media and say, bombshell, you know, a bombshell's after dropping. And I'm looking at this, I says, bomb, what? There was, the, the person never even met him, never heard him, wasn't on the call. Where, where are you getting the bombshell? Like? So... It just, it was the first time where I was saying, these people are trying to make me not believe my eyes and ears. I'm looking at something in real time, and they're telling me, actually, what I just saw didn't happen. So it was kind of the first, you know, it's probably the first time 1984 popped into my head. But it's popped in many times since. But, um... I don't know how I got dragged down this um got dragged dragged down this um particular rabbit hole. But oh yeah, going back to um 
Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon basically put that war room impeachment, it was called at the time. He put that podcast together and it was basically a kind of a circling of the wagons. And he, and it was an outlet for, you know, Republicans to come in and express their outrage. And, you know, it, it got a lot of traction very quickly. And so I was following this. I, ha- I had anything I'd heard about Steve Bannon up to that point was in the news and it was all bad. There was like, I think the first thing I saw was like a Saturday night live skit and it was early, like the first week of the Trump presidency and the, the media hadn't figured out what narrative they were going to work on Trump. They hadn't come up with the Russia thing quite yet. But one of the early narratives was that Steve Bannon was this Darth Vader type that was the puppet master for Trump. And they had a skit about it. So I remember that was the first time I saw it. I said, who's this fucking Irish-American to control Donald Trump? <laughs> so then I did a bit of research on him. And that was early in his presidency. You know, you forget these things and you go away. You know, you go on to other things. But... I kind of dialed back into him about the when the impeachment drove up and like he's definitely the best Republican strategist on that side of the aisle by a long way um, because you could see how he's peace and like don't get don't get me wrong there, there's, there's a lot not known about him but and when you see things like a federal indictment popping up on him you have you know the red lights have to go up, but I've, 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 I've that podcast I've watched for nearly a year, and you see how he messages things, the consistency of it, the you know, uh, um, wash, rinse, repeat. That's one of the mantras of media: is you get you get a story, you put it out there, then you wash it down, you find a different angle on it, you rinse it, and you repeat it, and you're seeing that at the moment in real time with the Hunter Biden story in the New York Post. There's something a little bit coming out every day. Now the big the big hammer should be coming down today. That's why I've been kind of delaying doing this podcast. But if anyone reads, if anyone listens to this, um, it there is a big drop today, and it's to do with video evidence of Hunter Biden and the way it was phrased by Rudy Giuliani yesterday is we've already proven financial crimes. But there are other crimes. So we're going to have to wait and see. But they're going to have to drop it today because the Biden-Trump debate is tomorrow night. It's going to have to drop before that. It's going to be the type of drop where they're going to be trying to basically checkmate or stalemate. So... If, the, if it drops the way they want it to drop, I would say Biden is, there's a gambler's chance Biden will pull out of the election. So, yes, that's the, the thing about, that's the hunter. The curious, from the journalist side of things on the Hunter Biden story, the drops themselves, Ukrainian corruption, using using the vice president's office to enrich themselves and it's basically if you go into it in detail there's no doubt it's like a a political crime family they're they're at every level in joe biden's career they've been leveraging his access and access to joe 
and they've made tens of millions. Hunter, Joe Biden's brother, nieces, nephews. It's like the New York Post has um, laid it out pretty good. Um, but the curious thing happened, and it's probably the bigger story, is that social media and mainstream media immediately started to suppress the story. So at, at the time of this podcast, the New York Post Twitter account has been down since last Thursday. They stopped anyone sharing the link to the original news article that exploded on last Thursday. The White House Press Secretary, Kayleigh McEnany, um, took down her Twitter account, locked her Twitter account, locked five or six other Twitter accounts that are significant pro-Trump accounts one or two in the one in, one or two in the media one or two po- politicians and like somebody like let's say james wood is an actor he's about 2.5 million twitter followers he's super in the tank for trump and he's very i suppose because he's in the entertainment industry he, he has a particular way of doing of carrying out his support for trump and it actually it pushes into kind of mainstream Twitter. It's not just, you know, an echo. Ch- it's not just going out to an echo chamber of other Republicans. So like, like what happens with a lot of, um, you know, there, there are no shortage of Republicans that have 300 or 400,000 Twitter followers, but like you'll often see that their message isn't getting, isn't make, breaking into the mainstream Twitter user. Like, you know, it's, it's it's really only circulating around the two or three or four million, you know, hardcore Republicans that are on Twitter. <clears throat> so, um, and I suppose it's just a where kind of to give you an idea where I've kind of got some information on th- this story is like the New York Post, um, is one place that um you know there they. Rupert Murdoch owned um, newspaper. It's one of the oldest news. I think it could be the oldest newspaper in the United States. Now it is a tabloid newspaper. Let's remember, but it is um, the thing about this is the emails that are allegedly honest, the videos that are allegedly honest, the pictures that are allegedly honest, and maybe you've seen one or two of them. Nobody in the Democratic Party is saying they're not that they're fake. Nobody's saying that. And they've been given ample opportunities to say it. Within six hours of the story coming out, Twitter pulled the link. And the New York Times, Washington Post, these kind of people started their narrative of its Russian disinformation. Now, when the New York Post and Washington, New York Times and Washington Post kicked that Russian disinformation narrative off in a series of articles what generally tends to happen is they reach out to certain democratic uh, members of congress whether they be in the senate or in the house and one of the prime guys they go to is adam shift shift he was he's californian congressman he is um he was the head he was um the head of that impeachment 
kind of fiasco, and he was the one driving the original Russia. You know, you know the narrative where uh, Donald Trump is uh, an agent of Russia and working under Putin's thumb. This, you know, if you believe that, yeah, good luck to you. Um, but of course, Adam Schiff was out. Adam Schiff was out, but what? happened that killed the narrative was the director of national intelligence John Radcliffe came out immediately and says there is no evidence that this has anything to do with Russian disinformation I've not I've not there's no intelligence coming to me from any of the intelligence agencies that this is true and since he did that that killed it stone dead now a bit of background on John Radcliffe to be fair Trump appointed him. He was a Republican congressman himself. He was part of the impeachment. Um, he was on the Republican side of the, uh, was it the Intelligence Committee that prosecuted, or the, I can't remember which committee kind of carried out the impeachment in the House of Representatives. But Radcliffe was a member. Now, and he's a, and he's a serious, like he's a solid erudite guy but he is a trump guy now trump's point was he had he, he needed to put somebody in there that would start declassifying information because what we've seen or what you've what basically what we've seen is that anything that trump has been accused of on the russia stuff and they haven't proven it number one but number two any de all the declassified information that's coming out about the first three months of Trump's presidency is showing that basically his campaign was spied on and his um, his campaign was spied on. His, you could argue his, the, first few, the first few months of his presidency were spied on by, you know, the head of the FBI and the head of the CIA. But, you know, that's, you can make your own decision about that but like what's not what's becoming clear now is that laws are broken to you know surveil members of the Trump campaign that's in black and white and so that whole original Russia story has blown up and has been you know it was disinformation like it was people won the New York Times won Several New York Times journalists won Pulitzer Prizes for their work on the Russia collusion hoax. The Russia collusion, which is now the Russia collusion hoax. So, like, it'll kind of give you a state of play. But one of the things, well, I can't understand this Hunter Biden story is so big. I cannot understand how they can justify not covering or not even going into detail because. You know, one of the things for me with journalism is, you know, there, and I, by journalism I mean reporting as opposed to opinion. Like most, most people that write, and I include myself, is that we're really given an opinion. Like anything I've said today, I've tried to, you know, I've tried, I've tried to show where I'm sourcing the information, and I've kind of try and give. A reasoning for why I've come to certain conclusions, and you can agree or disagree, but it's not, you know, it's not pure journalism or pure reporting. Like a pure reporting of the Hunter Biden story would be the five W's and 
are the five W's and a H. You'd say, what happened? Where did it happen? Who did it happen to? Why did it happen? How did it happen? So, like, like with, in particular, and when did it happen? I was going off my head there. Did I say I left out one there, didn't I? <laughs> so, like, what happened? Well, what happened? The, the question is, um, Hunter Biden's laptop is what happened. Where did it happen? Well, good question. You could say the where was, well, it happened. Where did it happen? It happened somewhere in Delaware, but what's on it? What? Where, which leads to another where question, where did the videos that are allegedly on this laptop get taken? Were they taken in the United States? Or was any of them perhaps taken in China? Maybe? Um, when did it happen? Well, we're, 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 that's an interesting question because on the, on the laptop, this laptop has been known about for a year. So put this in perspective, like there's a hashtag trending on trip Twitter at the moment that is laptop from hell. It's, I think it's number two or three hashtag in the States. Now it's probably Trump's words, but it's toxic, This what's on this laptop. And if we take it to be not Russian disinformation or Chinese disinformation, we take it on its merits or if you don't take it on its merits if you're a journalist you go and ask these questions so it's quite clear to me once this laptop went to the FBI a load of different people would have found out about it through the amount of leaks that are coming out of the FBI for the last four years so the question in my head is Joe Biden knows this is out there the DNC knows this is out there. So, my question is, why do they still cho choose Joe Biden over Bernie Sanders? Because if this laptop came out last December, Bernie Sanders would be the Democrat nominee for the presidency. So all the Bernie supporters should be absolutely um, devastated by this information because they were lied to. And I can't find any scenario where Joe Biden's campaign and the Democratic National Convention people didn't know about this. So if you, so this is kind of thinking out loud, if you surmise that they did know about it, why do they want, why is their preference for Joe Biden? Well, to me, the answer is Joe Biden's a globalist. Joe Biden will keep the status quo in place. And people can go back to making millions, billions. And by the time we get to the next election, I'm pretty certain we'll have our first trillionaire. So that's it in a nutshell for me, is that I don't have much sympathy for Bernie Sanders. He got fucked by Hillary Clinton in 2016. Him and his campaign should have learned the lesson. He, he turns around in 2020. He's more or less neck and neck. The DNC do another um, kneecapping job on him before Super Tuesday, where the, 
the majority of states are decided for the Democratic primary. They get two, they get Pete Buttigieg and Amy Klobuchar, I think it's Amy Klobuchar, to drop out before Super Tuesday, right? He consolidates there and, of course, within five minutes of dropping out, both of them endorse Joe Biden, who at this point is, you know, showing serious signs of mental decline. And yet, Elizabeth Warren, who's kind of the hard left with Bernie Sanders, she had about 10% of the vote at that stage. If she dropped out, even if she just dropped out, Bernie would probably still be the nominee. But he would 1,000% be the nominee if this laptop was investigated last December. So there's a lot of questions about the win on this because when certain people knew about it, we know that the the laptop found its way to Rudy Giuliani's lawyer and Steve Bannon. And look, when Steve Bannon gets something like this, good night, Eileen. Um, the who? The who is Hunter Biden. The who is Hunter Biden, which, again, if you're a reporter, it leads to a lot, a lot of other who's. Who's affected? Who's on the videos? You could, you could knock two or three stories out there. Why? Well, the why of the dropping is simple. It's, you know, you're, this is the October is called in election years the October surprise. There's no, like, this is an operation. There's no, like, this just didn't fall out of the sky, this story. The, you know, it's being executed logically with, you know, strategically. And there, today or tomorrow is when the final drop on this story comes. And if it's as explosive as what I'm hearing, it's, e you know, either... It's going to knock them completely out of the campaign, or they've mustered enough support within the corridors of power. And by corridors of power, I mean the media, tech, and government to limp over the line in two weeks' time. But, like, if it's the latter scenario, I think. I think Biden's got, like, at this point, it's hard. The momentum shifted to Trump last Thursday. And what I mean by that is Trump has won the news cycle for six days in a row. He has not won the news cycle six days in a row since he became president. So I would say that, you know, he's probably gained three points since the story's dropped. Like, if you put it at a half a point a day and the people... Anyone sitting on the fence that's heard this story, and I don't mean that there's a lot sitting on the fence, but if you take any independent who decided to vote for Biden that's heard the story, will definitely have second thoughts. Um, and the last was how was this in um, the how the the how the reporting of this is you know how how did it come to the New York Post. How much? Well, how much does Rupert? How much does Rupert Murdoch know about this? Because Rupert Murdoch is going to be critical to the deciding of this election if it's close, because he's he's a global media influence. So he owns Fox, he owns the New York Post, 
on Sky. So if Trump has if Trump has a narrow window, if Trump is winning narrowly on the night of the election, Trump is going to come straight out and say, I've won the election. Now, I fully expect Facebook and Twitter to shut down his account if he does that, to basically lock him out. So Trump is going to be relying on somebody in the media to agree with him. And that person is going to have to be Rupert Murdoch or his sons. Because the New York Times, if Trump has a 10-point win or a 15-point lead on election night, the Washington Post, New York Times, CNN, MSNBC, NBC, CBS, ABC, none of these people are going to declare him a winner. So he's going to be relying on one his one outlet to get um to get a foundation of credibility established and that's going to be Rupert Murdoch Fox News New York Post to give him a foundation but like you know that's we I'll talk about that because the Democratic Party have what's called a strategist's going it's called the transition integrity project and i if you're still with me i invite you to go look that up because it's basically a war game scenario for this the five different outcomes that can happen in the election and in all five outcomes what are the five outcomes big trump win big trump lead narrow trump lead too close to call narrow biden huge Biden. In every one of those scenarios, in the transition integrity project narrative, Donald Trump does not end up as the President of the United States. Which brings us nicely to our next story. It's been far too serious. Jesus, I'm going an hour here. I was one of one of my biggest uh, one of my biggest issues was going to be how am I going to talk for an hour? I've never spoken for an hour in my life. I can go through a whole day saying only the following words. Can I have 20 silk or purple, please? Next. Jeffrey Tubin. If you don't know who Jeffrey Tubin is, God bless you. He's the legal analyst for... He's a legal analyst for CNN. He's a he's a senior writer with the New Yorker magazine. Now, New Yorker magazine's one of these big, you know, liberal, you know, in love with itself, but highly regarded publication in the States. And Jeffrey Tubin has literally been a pain, one of the media pains in Republican side for, you know, as far as I can remember anyway, because I don't mind information or criticism about people, but there's this kind of, you know, emotion. They're like, they're, there's something, the delivery is always, there's something wrong with you if you don't agree with me. No, well, what, what leads you to that? Well, is there something wrong with us? So the news headline, and for this story, we have to go to the Irish Sun. I'm going to read out a piece of this because the Irish Sun, this is a, this is a story made for a good tabloid writer. 
So, anti-Trump CNN pundit Jeffrey Tubin masturbated on Zoom call with colleagues. As he says, I thought no one could see. Well, you were wrong about that. And there's a certain art to, I think, myself, to um, tabloid writing. It's kind of, it's done well in this piece. So the original breaker of the story was, I think, Vice Magazine and Vice Magazine and States. So the Sun are picking up. This is like, you know, this is a layup kind of story for someone like the Sun because they get a, it gets uh, it gets a lot of clicks and you know all the heavy lifting is already done by somebody else. CNN pundit Jeffrey Tubin has been suspended for accidentally flashing his penis during a Zoom call with colleagues, and reportedly also masturbating. Anti-Trumper Tubin was suspended by the New Yorker after showing his man part during a virtual meeting with the magazine and YNYC radio sources revealed to Vice. Um, this is the bit I liked. On Monday evening, Vice updated its story with the editor's note. This piece has been updated with more detail about the call. The headline has been updated to reflect that Tubin was masturbating. The headline was updated to New Yorker suspends Jeffrey Tubin for masturbating on Zoom call. I spoke with two anonymous people who were on the call, which was an election simulation featuring the New Yorker's most prolific journalists, with Tubin reportedly playing the courts. Both sources said they saw Tubin jerking off, in quotes. The simulation included a strategy session with a breakout of about 10 minutes. At this point, they said, it seemed like Tobin was on a second video call. The sources said that when the, when the groups returned from their break, from their breakout rooms, Tobin lowered the camera. The people on the call said they could see Tobin touching his penis. Tobin is T-O-O-B-I-N. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. Tobin then left the call, the vice report states. Moments later, he called back in, seemingly unaware of what his colleagues had been able to see, and the simulation continued. Do you notice how they're using the word simulation three times in this article? That's not an accident. Tubin has since apologized and told the news outlet, I can, I made an embarrassing, stu embarrassingly stupid mistake, believing I was off camera. I apologize to my wife, family, friends, and co-workers. Tubin added, I believe I, I believed I was not visible on Zoom. I should hope not. I thought no one on the Zoom call could see me. I thought I had muted the Zoom video. Tubin has not posted to Twitter for approximately one week, and his condenasta email has been disabled, according to the report. Um, two things there. The two things there. Two is that repeated use of the word simulation. And the reason I think they do that is phonetically it's very close to stimulation. And there's also uh, the use of the word penetrating. And of course, they're both designed to get you in, to think in that kind of, you know, sexual kind of language so the simulate the the repeated use of the word simulation in my opinion is no in no way an accident but it's it's kind of 
you know, there's an art, there's an art to doing that. Like, and the other, there's an actual, there's actually a big buried lead in this Vice article slash Irish Sun article that's important. And the thing that's important is, what were ten New Yorker journalists and Jeffrey Tubin doing at the time of this infamous Zoom call? They were playing out war games of a post-election scenario where Jeffrey Tubin was acting as the kind of a judge in a judge scenario. So they're obviously working on a narrative that they're going to write about in two or three weeks' time where this election ends up in the courts in some shape or form or, you know, some state, federal court or, you know, maybe the Supreme Court. But these journalists are playing out those scenarios and working on a narrative that they're going to chase. It's pretty clear. So the question I have is, why aren't these 10 journalists working on the Hunter Biden story? Like, there's literally about 50 different roads you could go down on what's on that laptop. But no, the New Yorker are working out how they're going to write about the post-election scenario if things get messy. And that that just, to me, that kind of tells you a lot about what's going on in, you know, the global media organisations and how that relates back into Ireland is if you go on to, if you go on to the Irish Independent today, and this is the Irish Independent today, or RTE News, I'll take a quick look at just one of them. But um, you'd imagine, I'd imagine, I'd like to know about this Hunter Biden laptop if I, if I was a reader. So I might say to myself, do you know what I'll do? I'll go on to the RT News website and I'll uh, see what they're saying about it. And let's see what they're saying about what's going on in the United States. We'll go to World and got a lead story about COVID cases in Poland. Like, we're really interested in that. We've got a story from the US, Obama to make campaign trail debut for Biden. Obama pulled this stunt in 2016 and it backfired, but anyway. And of course, Joe Biden isn't campaigning at all. He's four days locked up in his basement since this story broke. But let's see, I'm sure, I'm sure RT News have something about this story. Oh, hold on, here's U.S. election 2020. The bombshell from the RT.ie is U.S. election. What are swing states? What are swing states? Now, it just goes to show you the level of... the level of contempt Ireland, uh, RTE, have for Irish readers. That they think the majority of Irish people need to be explained. They need to explain to them what a swing state is. They're not even offering to tell you what the swing states are in this election cycle. The headline is, what are swing states? Like, do they think the whole country is dumb, stupid? So, here's the prediction. The prediction is going to be that if whatever they drop today, or later today, or early tomorrow, will be so big, RTE will have to have it on their website. So, 
I'll end the podcast on that point. Let's see. Go on to the RT website on Wednesday night, Thursday night, and see if there's anything about Hunter Biden. Um, that's all I've got for you. Um, it's been thanks to anyone that's listened. I have no guarantees that anyone will have listened, but that's been me, G or Jerry, um, thinking out loud for the last one hour and 11 minutes. And hopefully we'll be back with episode two on Saturday or Sunday. Thanks and goodbye.